guys welcome back to let's talk about it i'm megan and i'm jackie and today we are continuing our disagreement <laughs> our fight <laughs> our debate that ends in a lot of violence that you guys won't hear oh, on yeah. here but we're basically burning each other's books after yeah. this oh so just beating each other up mm-hmm. No, of course not. That it's all sarcastic. <laughs> we are going to be going into Mary. That was a really weird way to saying that. But we are going to be talking about views on Mary, meaning the mother of God. Um, this is something that, just like Sola Scriptura, which we talked about in the other episode, it's once again like a really sensitive, hot button issue that both Protestants and Catholics, one, I think really misunderstand, um, especially Protestants. But two, just like very like people have very strong opinions on it. Um, so that's exactly why we chose it, obviously. <laughs> so I think just like the last one, we wanted to start with our points of agreement. That's a great way to just kind of start a discussion mm-hmm. is, you know, just beginning off um, at the same point. Yeah. And before we even get into it, I just want to say, as most of you know, if you've listened to this podcast faithfully, I know anything about me. <laughs> this is a very touchy subject for me um, because my devotion to Mary is very strong but I think it's something that we need to talk about and I need to get better at talking about with people um, and I think Megan's the perfect person for that so <laughs> and like we said before we're not trying to debate or change the other person's no. mind which we preface with the other because we're just not going to we already kind of know what the other person is going to say or believes and it's just not going to change we just want to have a better understanding of the other person's view and that's the point of this and our also desire just, is not to shake the other person's faith yes, in any way <laughs> exactly we just want to better understand each other and have a greater respect for each other and have that place and that space to talk about it because that's what this entire podcast is about so yes as megan said we can talk about our points of agreement which we both agree that mary was a godly person and in many ways a model disciple Um, God chose her to be the mother of his son, Jesus, and her humble response to the angel where she was willing to do what the Lord called her to do, um, you know, is an example for all. Yeah, we also agree that Jesus was miraculously conceived in Mary's virgin womb through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, We're also in agreement with the theological conclusion in the Council of Ephesus, which took place in AD 431, that Mary is the mother of God. And that's like, for some reason, I've talked to a lot of Protestants where that term is like really like, oh, and I'm like, just think about it. We all agree. <laughs> Mary is the mother of God, obviously. Um, so I think I just really wanted to throw in um, a quote by Martin Luther as a good Protestant. Um, Martin Luther, actually, this might surprise some people. He believed a lot of the Catholic views of Mary. His thing was he didn't think it was um, necessary for faith. Um, But towards the end of his life, he kind of started reconsidering some of them. So I found this quote interesting. He says, the honor given to the mother of God has been so rooted, sorry, has been rooted so deeply into the hearts of men that no one wants to hear any opposition to this celebration. We also grant that she should be honored since we, according to St. Paul's words, are indebted to show honor to one another for the sake of the one who dwells in us, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have an obligation to honor Mary, but be careful to give her honor that is fitting. Unfortunately, I worry that we give her all too high an honor for which she is accorded much more esteem than she would should be given 
or that she counted to herself. Um, and obviously I'll let Jackie respond, but real quick, I just remembered I wanted to say this. Um, (laughs) I have learned so much about Mary from being friends with Jackie and it's something I've really appreciated because this was an area of Catholicism that was extremely confusing to me. I, yeah, really did not understand it. was just very confused um, to the point where <laughs> when Jackie and I were preparing for this, I was like looking up just like the basic like terms for Marian theology. And I was reading about Mary's assumption <laughs> into heaven. And I was like, oh, and in my head, I just immediately went to like Jesus being assumed into heaven. And I was like, so they don't think Mary died? That doesn't make any sense. Like, there's like, like, his, like they think there's historical evidence of her tomb and like all these things. And I was like so confused. And it wasn't until Jackie was like, you do know that we, that doesn't mean we don't think she died. <laughs> so we all have so much to learn about this. Um, and I just wanted to give you my hilarious mistake um, to see that this has been humbling for me. Um, so yeah, Jackie, why don't you start us out? I think a big maybe kind of first problem that Protestants have a lot of times with this is the term veneration. Catholics um, venerate Mary, and a lot of Protestants recoil at that. Mm -hmm. So kind of, could you just go in and explaining this? You know, what is the difference between Mm -hmm. veneration and worship? All of those kind of issues coming along with that. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very important because we should not be honoring or worshiping Mary in a way that is equal to Jesus, that would be very wrong. So this is very important for everyone to understand, um, Catholics or Protestants, which a lot of Catholics do not understand what I'm about to say. Most of what I'm going to say, we just don't learn, and they really don't know. I didn't know for a very long time until I took a class on a very specific class called Mariology at my Catholic university. Um, so this is not something that I was just taught and people like people should know this because it is very important and it would be a massive sin to worship Mary or equate her to God. And that gives me offense to like think that that could even happen. Mm. Um, so we have two different terms. I'll get a little technical. Latria worship versus dulia worship. So yes, both of them, we are using the tor- terms worship, but Latria worship is adoration, which is the worship alone that you give to an uncreated being. So that is God alone, the Trinity, the only ones that will ever deserve adoration, that level of just, yes, it is only God that deserves that reverence, that kind of worship that deserves adoration. Then we have dulia worship, which is the worship or the veneration that you give to created beings, which would be Mary, the saints, and Mary, the term we actually use for her is hyperdulia because we think she's above the other saints. We think God gave her a very specific and special role in our spiritual lives. Um, so that's what we would, those are the terms that we use. So when you're giving Latria worship, uh, adoration to, you know, the and you are recognizing that all comes from God, all is the cause. God is the cause of everything. When you're venerating, um, giving Julia worship to saints, it's just venerating them in a special way to see that God is using them as a place in your life or in your spiritual development, but they only have that that power or that role because God gave it to them and is the source of it. Nothing comes from them. They are created beings. They're absolutely nothing without God. Everything comes from God. So that's a very important distinction that when you are 
um, asking for any saints intercession or Mary's intercession you need to know and it's not something you're always actively thinking about but you just know and that's the source of where that prayer that um, veneration is coming from that's super helpful for me I don't know if anyone listening is like oh but that's how I am Um, I just I think that distinction is very helpful because once again it just comes down to how we define these words right like I we would I we would not have come to an understanding if we hadn't just sat down and actually like define those words because I don't define those words or think of them and use them in that way so that's super helpful um so I'll kind of throw like three questions at you Jackie mm-hmm. kind of so you can go into this these are ones that I think commonly are brought up by Protestants and that is you know can veneration mistakenly become worship does focus on mary take focus away from christ you know just either maximalism or minimizing you know minimizing or maximizing mary's role um why don't you just kind of address those are kind of just common responses i think i hear Mm -hmm, for sure um yeah so can veneration ever accidentally become adoration yes it probably can because we're sinful humans and we can just go way off the walls in either way and I think we've seen and I've even seen in some certain cultures where things got twisted Mm. and people genuinely just they're not educated they just do not understand I think I'm not going to say any specific cultures but there are cultures where people are not educated like on those terms I just said and they don't really understand um and they do think Mary is this goddess or has this special way of power that, and they don't recognize that everything that she is and, you know, ever will be anything she's ever done is because God gave her that power and, you know, she obeyed him to do so. Um, so I guess it can, if you're not properly educated or really understand what you're doing. And that I have to say upsets Mary more than it even upsets any human being because her entire disposition, her entire role, as she says in the Annunciation, is to do the will of God. And that grievously would aff- offend her if mm-hmm. anyone tries to put her at the level of her son, you know, God. So I think there's more of a problem I see of people not understanding Mary's role or honoring her in the way she deserves to be. And that's among Catholics and Protestants because I did not understand, like I said before, Mary I didn't honor Mary I didn't understand what she was doing in my life I didn't you know think and how I had it described to um, to me so yeah you, and you also asked the question does Mary does focus on Mary take focus away from Christ and with the right disposition no Mary's entire role is to bring us closer to Christ and my professor my Mariology professor described it as Jesus and Mary are in the same role room Mary's entire role is to bring us closer to Jesus Jesus if one has a true devotion to Mary they will become closer to Christ. Um, and I don't think no anyone, no one can love Mary more than Jesus loves his own mother. And I think that we bring him joy, what I've experienced in my own spiritual life, when we do properly honor her in the role that we think that God has given her. And um, can I address maximalism and, you know, minim- minimalism, minim- minimizing, sorry, that's a lot. <laughs> for some reason, that word <laughs> is hard for me. A lot of M's. <laughs> I don't know why that word was so hard for me. But we actually did talk about this in my Mariology class. Like I said, I think there is much more of an issue with minimizing Mary's role. I did it. Most Catholics do it. Um, certainly Protestants do it. Um, as a Catholic, yeah, we're not usually taught the fullness, fullness of the teachings on Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think better education is the solution. I think people properly understanding her role so that they do not fall into worshiping her, which it would be terrible. I think that's not what Mary wants. It's certainly, you know, not what God wants. 
Um, but I think that properly honoring Mary and understanding her role only brings you closer to Christ. And that's been most definitely my own experience. Thanks for explaining that. I think that helps me. Um, you know, some of these questions I'm asking Jackie and I have actually already talked about, Mm -hmm. but I did want to bring them up because they're ones that I've had. And I think a lot of Protestants have had, I think, um, another question that is probably improperly asked because once again those terms is is time spent venerating mary is that time taken away from venerating christ um and then if you want to just kind of address what you feel protestants are missing by not venerating mary Mm -hmm. so yeah i kind of talked about this but when megan asked me this question i just wanted to define the terms again Mm -hmm. um for everyone because like i said i don't think any people on either side really understand this i didn't for a very long time um yeah so for proper terms we don't venerate christ we adore him um and i just like to keep those terms in mind because the kind of way that we you know venerate mary is just not the same way that we worship christ um yeah i don't think that you if you have the proper mindset and you're actually just venerating mary will ever take away because mary's entire role is ultimately to bring you to christ she will not make the focus on herself And I think Protestants and a lot of Catholics, by not properly venerating Mary, they're just not experiencing her as their mother in the way that I feel like God wants them to. So, you know, we we both agree Mary is the mother of God, the Theotokos. I think, I don't think, the teaching of the Catholic Church (laughs) is Mary is a gift from our Father. I think anyone who does not include Mary in their spirituality misses out on the loving, gentle gift that she is to us. This mothering and gentle role God created her for and to be this in our lives. I think Jesus gave us to her. We see in this passage, you know, in the Bible when Jesus is on the cross and he gives his mother to John and says, you know, like to John, behold your mother and to Mary, behold your son, John. And we take that as a message to all the faithful that we should just take Mary into our own homes, the homes in our heart take her as our own mother just as she's jesus's mother you know his biological mother um you know jesus is our brother mary is also our mother jesus is you know he's mary is the mother of christ our brother she's also our mother and i think that yeah i think a lot of people are missing out on that role of her in their lives that God wants her to be. And it's very hard for me to explain because I've just experienced this on a deeply spiritual level so profoundly that it's something I can never really put into words. I think I even tried to when I talked about my spiritual life because she's such a huge role, but I just can't even, I can't do it. It's one of those just mystical divine experiences that you have of God, you know, using these, using Mary in my life that it's very hard for me to explain, but that's really what she does. And she has only brought me closer to Jesus in a way I never even thought was possible. Just as she brought Jesus into the world through her womb, she continues to bring us to Jesus through the role that God gave her. That's really helpful for me. Um, And I do think that it is unfortunate that a lot of Protestants don't see any role for Mary or don't give her any honor. Um, You know, just like we said at the beginning, we should honor Mary. Um, It's just kind of to what degree or in what way I think Mm -hmm. that the differentiation occurs. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to bring up the different areas in which uh, we disagree. 
um, those being Mary's perpetual virginity, her immaculate conception, her role as co-redemptrix, mediatrix, and advocate, and then also her position as queen of heaven. So kind of starting out with perpetual virginity, um, I think I'll just like real quick summarize my position on this. Um, is that Mary is the mother of God. Like we said, we agree with, with that. Um, and we do hold to the virgin birth. So the significance of the virgin birth, we think, is that it's not in that she was upholding a vow of chastity to God, but rather it exemplifies or shows the miracle of Jesus' conception. And we see um, the doctrine of perpetual virginity, our view is that it came out of a lot of the negative views of sexuality that the early church had, that you see in church fathers, unfortunately, um, just a lot of their views regarding women. Um, and so the reformers noted that while scripture explicitly requires belief in the virgin birth, mm-hmm. it only permits acceptance of perpetual virginity, and that the virgin birth is stated in scripture, but there's no... Um, further explicit biblical basis for Mary's perpetual virginity. Um, So kind of some passages that we would bring up that Jackie will respond to is Luke 2, 6 through 7, where it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. We read that as meaning there were more after. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And then Matthew 1, 24 when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until they had given birth to a son. Um, so reading that is until, meaning there was something after. And then Luke eight nineteen through 21. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So Jackie, I'll give you, obviously... Um, space to kind of respond and just summarize your view. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first thing I will address, because that was a lot, and those are very good points um, that you made, Megan, about the concept of virginity. And thus, seeing her as a perpetual virgin is, in a way, degrading sex or having a negative view of female you know women and their sexuality um and that's a good point because i i think that's a just a problem that we've seen in christian culture in general so that is a concern um but for us her preserving god preserving her virginity um virginity is a beautiful thing and it does not degrade the beautiful gift of sex but rather uplifts it when one takes a vow of virginity, they're you know giving up that beautiful gift that sex is, and offering up their sexual desires and desires you know for a family to God. We see this with the religious people when they're rejecting sex, they're not saying sex is a bad or a dirty thing. The fact that they're affirming that it's such a beautiful thing because it's such a sacrifice to give it up. Mm-hmm. People taking vows of chastity is in no way insinuating that sex is a dirty or bad thing, but yeah, like I said, rather re- affirms the gift that it is. So. We see, you know, Mary not having sex or being a virgin is in no way degrading sex. We're just seeing that we, you know, think that God wanted her to remain a virgin and she did that faithfully because it was God's will, not because sex is a bad thing. We also see that God preserved her womb for Christ alone. 
because you know we both would agree in <laughs> the incarnation of Christ being born of a woman was just an a insane <laughs> a miracle just a beautiful thing and that her womb was just alone preserved for Christ and it's just in no way yeah saying that sex or that not remaining a virgin is a dirty thing that she if she had had sex that would have been a bad dirty thing um no it's just that she was you know being faithful to God and um, giving up that given her giving up that gift in her womb was preserved for Christ. Um, so I, yeah, I just wanted to address that first, um, and then I wanted to address yeah Luke two six through seven, just because you said firstborn, we don't think that means it was her only firstborn. It was just it was her, for, it was her first son. Doesn't mean that she had any other ones. Um, that's yeah there's I, there are better responses to that specific passage I fo- focused on other ones and I want to say that all of my responses are not all <laughs> inclusive oh, for sure for sure <laughs> for both of us of like the the full I will leave books for this that explain by people much smarter than me in I mean depth. each of these passages like yeah sermons could be written about mm-hmm. them multiple and ones I, yeah, so and these will, are summaries only yeah I will leave sources and if Megan wants to leave any sources she can where you can really read in depth about these because we're not addressing all of the points at all mm-hmm. um but I will get into Matthew 1 through 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And that is confusing because I would read that same way, you know, in the way that we think of the word until now and read that the same way. Um, but this modern interpretation understands the word until to imply that after Mary had given birth to Jesus, Joseph had sexual, sex, sexual relations with Mary. Though that is a valid interpretation of the word until, it does, you know, that word does not always refer to a time before then after. Sometimes it refers to a time before, um, both before and after. For example, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Jesus was not saying, I won't be with you after the end of the age. He was saying, I will be with you until the end of the age and after the age. But the way he used until it would, it can sound like Jesus is saying, I will be with you until the end of the age. And then that's it. But that's obviously not how that, what that word was meant. Um, another passage is in second Samuel um, six, verse 23. Therefore, therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul had no children until the day of her death. She obviously did not have children after the day of her death. So we're just, we're interpreting until in different ways, and that shows in the Bible there is room to interpret until to mean um, that both before Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had no sexual relations, relations, and it also is a valid thing to believe that she also did not um, have after with the way that until could be interpreted. Okay, so those are two of the passages, but there was another argument that you brought up, Megan, that I will let you say now. Yeah, so regarding... Luke 8, 19-21, which I'll read again. The passage goes, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And this is where I'll get a little nerdy, and I apologize. Uh, I took several years of Greek, so I love looking at like the Greek terms being used. Um, because I have heard it suggested that these brothers that are referenced are cousins or distant relatives or possibly stepbrothers. Um, and my question is, if this is true, 
why didn't the writers use the Greek term for cousins, um, anepsios? Uh, that Greek word did exist. It was used in scripture, for example, in Colossians 4.10. So if they were more distant relatives, why not use the Greek word meaning relatives? Like the word they used to describe Mary and Elizabeth's relational status in Luke 1.36. Why did Matthew and Mark use the words most commonly translated as brothers, Adelphos, and sisters, Adelphae? Um, I just feel that in any other context, no one would question the meaning. Mm-hmm. And so I have heard this addressed, and I'll leave the sources as well, but the term, and I'm not going to say this as well, Eldelphos, is also translated as cousin, near relative, or even kinsman. And even more common, it's used um, for uh, just other Christian brethren it can be used for. And I looked this up and it did say that. And so that's what I learned when I was learning to argue against this. And I would even say when I read that passage in Luke 8, 19 through 21, when Jesus says, um, well, it says, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So I think that even confirms Jesus was not referring to actual brothers here. He even says it when he calls all who hear the voice of God um, his brothers. And we believe that that first term can be used to refer to those, um, to the close brethren of Christ. And Megan brought up, then why would, why would she say like, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you? Um... And I would say that that woman was referring to, she wasn't making a, you know, a difference between using that term for close cousins uh, or close, you know, people to Christ versus just anyone else that are um, brethren or Christians, which at the time there weren't Christians, but you know what I mean. Uh. Um, not yet. Um, or defined. But um, I just, yeah, I don't read that. I don't think we're taking out of context that we're saying that they were referring to people that were close to Christ, not actual brothers, because that term really can be used for cousins or just close people to Christ. So I guess that's something that we just agree to disagree on. Yeah, agree to disagree. I mean, I guess, yeah, I, we would say that semantic range, like a word that can mean something else, does not necessarily mean that it does in that context so we would look at that phrase and say oh christ is making a like that distinction and comparison because he's his biological mother and brothers are there and he's saying all who believe me are also in that family Mm -hmm. the family of god Mm -hmm. um yeah so once again it just goes to show that we can both read our bible (laughs) and have different ways of looking at those words and terms yeah, and we would say the woman was saying, and I don't know if I really said this clearly before. I don't feel like I did. I feel like I was just talking. Um, that she was meaning with that, like people that are very close to you and spend time with you and are maybe blood-related to you versus other people that are just around you. Followers. Yeah, followers of you. So she was making that distinction is what we would say. Um, but yeah, we just we read that differently. Oh, also, I would like to point out that we think the fact that when Jesus was on the cross that he gave 
Mary to John is further pointing that he had no other siblings because it would just be against, be very strange and against the Jewish custom. Um, because according to custom, if the oldest son died, it would fall on the next oldest to take care of the mother. Um, but because Jesus, we think, was Mary's only son, that she appointed John to take care of his mother because he had no other siblings. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of moving along, but something interesting that Jackie and I have both talked about in just like our differences of Catholicism and Protestantism is that they do believe that marriage is sacramental, right? And only Catholic marriage is sacramental. Um, so when I was thinking of that, I guess my question would be that if she never consummated her marriage with mm-hmm. Joseph, is would it be considered legitimate or sacramental in the Catholic Church? So before Jesus, they weren't living by the Catholic Church or by those standards of sacramental living because all of that was instituted following from Jesus when he left his church with his disciples. So, you know, Mary and Jesus were living by Jewish custom. And in Jewish custom, it was very common for there to be um, marriages where there was no sex. So we don't think it's at all strange that they would have decided, because we do think before even Mary and Joseph, because, you know, there were two steps of getting married. There was the betrothal where you are technically married, but then, you know, you come together and live in the home and have sex. So it is a different way of marriage than we see in the Christian communities now. It was very common to have marriages where there was no sex. So we would see that they were living by that. And also, even if we were to have those like standards, the fact that it's a very unique situation that Jesus is coming into the world. <laughs> so <laughs> there might be exceptions, which we wouldn't even see as an exception because they were living you know, by the Jewish customs of marriage. Um, that Jesus, that God would just want to preserve Mary's womb for Jesus alone because that was a once in, you know, a miracle thing that happened. Um, so that's how we would respond to that. I think, too, it was just so helpful for me to hear um, your distinctions between purity and virginity and mm-hmm. how often, you know, we think of those two as synonymous. And I know personally, like just being vulnerable growing up in purity culture that was very much what was communicated to me right like purity is basically another word for being a virgin um and so i think a lot of that baggage can kind of come into you know hearing about like oh mary's perpetual virginity and just being like oh you know as someone coming from purity culture that that would be i don't know if triggering is the right word but just that those preconceived notions would be there um so yeah i think out of that just kind of comes the question like does mary have to remain a virgin in order to be pure Mm -hmm. and so this is where i will use some terms at least in the catholic way that we use those terms purity itself is not about sexuality purity is free from sin and not sinning so chastity is actually the term that we use for sexual integrity for sexual um purity using that again but being it's being chaste is actually what is really the virtue related to sexuality so for mary to remain pure she simply had to do god's will and not sin and for her we believe god's will was for her to remain a virgin and we also which we'll get into we think mary was immaculate she never sinned that's why we call her pure because she never sinned she never went against god in any way we think so 
that's why we call her pure. It's not even related to her sexuality and just unfortunately and for I think bad reasons you know women have been targeted for their sexuality that term purity has been just about sexuality especially in regards to women because we have been made to feel so ashamed of sex Mm -hmm. and our sexuality um yeah and Megan's experience is very valid I experienced some of that as well and that is a problem but that's just the way that we use those terms so we're not even just referring to Mary's sexuality we're referring to her faithfulness to God yeah, once again, like, if you could take anything away from this, it's that terms are so important in these mm-hmm. discussions. Um, yeah, so you brought up a, a great segue into um, Immaculate Conception. So, um, I guess my note on this would be that we, when we look at church history, we see that Immaculate Conception, um, that wasn't formally even declared a church doctrine until 1854 by Pope Pius IX. Um, so we see that this doctrine developed very slowly in church history, um, that even Thomas Aquinas opposed it. So we read as Protestants that Romans 3 details that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. So we don't make a distinction between original sin and personal sin. We just see original sin is applying blankly to all humans. If you are a human, you have sin. Um, and our sin is not something that God can take away because the wages of sin is death from Romans 6.23. So if God could exempt Mary of original sin, you know, why could God not exempt all souls from original sin? Or more so, why doesn't he? It's because we see that sin requires blood sacrifice, death, and that only death, can, that could, the only death that could cover us all is the sinless death of Jesus our Savior. You know, 1 John 1.8 says, if anyone claims to be sinless, they are a liar. You know, Christ took upon himself punishment for every sin that is ever and will be ever committed. Um, So we see that saying that someone could be without sin suggests that there is a soul that doesn't need Christ's power or also that Christ's work is not fully needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all very um, good points. I think that a lot of people misunderstand or as Catholics haven't even thought about. So... Um, the first thing I will address that you said was that the Immaculate Conception wasn't formally declared to be church doctrine until 1854, which is true. Um, that doesn't mean that it wasn't something that was held in our tradition uh, as doctrine, which is also binding or something that was very believed. It just took time to develop to be formally declared ex cathedra as a dogma by the Pope. So that's how I would respond to that. So we don't think that in any way takes away from the fact that it was true and always it was held by a lot of church fathers that she was sinless uh, throughout tradition. Um, And Jesus was Mary's savior and she says that in the Annunciation. So Jesus's sacrifice was necessary for Mary to be born sinless. And this is where God being outside of time comes in because we think that at the moment of Mary's conception, God used the saving graces um, from Jesus's sacrifice, his blood sacrifice, out of time because he can do that to preserve Mary from sin. And that's the way that we would see that because she did need a savior. She said that in the Annunciation, she called, you know, God her savior. So that's how we would respond to that. I would agree with everything Megan said that every single human being did need to be saved by Christ. So that's the way that we, um, that's our beliefs about that. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, You know, just that I think a lot of us don't understand that you believe that she was saved through Jesus's um, death on the cross. Mm -hmm. 
not necessarily through his birth which i think is a good thing to bring up Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't jesus's Mm -hmm. birth that saved her it was his death because god is Mm -hmm. outside of time so Mm -hmm. that's helpful for me um so i think a response that is maybe thrown at catholics a lot is that if mary is also born sinless you know that kind of takes away from the miracle of jesus like you know jesus being the only person born sinless ever you know and if mary kind of takes part of that too that that's taking something away from him Mm -hmm. so kind of how would you respond to people saying that yeah so this goes back to what i um just explained although we do believe that mary and jesus were both sinless jesus is sinless because he is god mary is sinless because god made her that way and used the power um from jesus's sacrifice on the cross to make her sinless so it's just you know jesus is still the only one who is fully god and fully man he is totally unique, the only begotten son, the only hypostatic union, the, you know, the only human to walk this earth ever worthy of adoration. So it's still just a very different. Um, as I will probably say over and over again, the only reason Mary has any of the powers he has, she has, the roles she has, is because they came from God. Jesus is sinless because he is God. Yeah, perfect. Um and then once again, going back to, you know, I think a lot of times in my head, <laughs> the terms purity and sinlessness are kind of just like mm-hmm. mushed together. Um, so is there a difference between purity and sinlessness, especially in the situation of Mary? Um, yeah. So as I said, the definition of purity is to be free from sin. So the fact, the fact that Mary was pure is the same thing as saying she was sinless. So that is kind of what we... Mm-hmm. mean by that by calling her the pure uh, pure um we think that she totally followed god's will in all ways because she did not have the effects of sin you know as she said to the angel when he when he came she said i am the handmaid of the lord be it done unto me according to thy will she fully submitted to god's will um, so that's what we mean by her being pure and sinless so i will go into our script scriptural basis because um Everything that we believe about Mary, we believe is implicitly in the Bible and does not contradict scripture. So our um, teaching that Mary was sinless, we base this on Genesis 3.15, where God says to um, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. She shall crush your head and you shall lie in wait for her heel. So we see that as he's going to put full enmity between Satan and Mary and between her seed, which is Jesus, and Satan. So we see that as to be in complete enmity from Satan, you have to be completely free from sin. So Mary was never going to suffer and or in any way given to Satan as we all unfortunately do as humans that are affected by sin. So that's what we base that on. Um, And there are some interpretations that he shall crush your head and you shall um, lie in wait, different interpretations. But either way, that very first part of like, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between um, your seed and her seed. That's, you know, one of the key parts right there is that we think God put complete enmity between not only, you know, Jesus and Satan, obviously, as he was God, but between Mary. Um, So that's where that comes from is Genesis 3.15. And also in Luke one twenty eight, when the angel of Gabriel meets Mary, he says to her, Hail, full of grace. 
And this is where um, I'm going to bring in Greek too, because for both of us, Greek is you know very important. <laughs> we're both nerds. I know we're both nerds <laughs> and we care about these words. Um, very important. Um, and I don't even know if I'm going to say this right. I will see it in the notes. But the Greek word um, for you know full of grace here is keratomini. <laughs> I will spell that out. Um, and it is a perfect passive participle that grammatically refers to an action entirely completed in the past. The angel Gabriel refers to an action of grace that was perfectly completed in the past and yet is still important for the present. So he's saying to Mary, you are full of grace now and you were in the past and always will be. Um, Mary received her fullness of grace at conception, the Immaculate Conception, being totally full of grace, being totally sinless. So it's right where there where the grammar is very important. And that's how we read that and why those are two of the main passages that we base her um, immaculate conception and sinlessness on. So that interpretation of Genesis 3, um, I know just in our notes as we were preparing for this podcast, you said that that passage also points to her role as co-redemptrix. So that kind of, uh, again, segues into the next section. Wow. Um, could you just kind of define what her roles are in terms of co-redemptrix, mediatrix, and advocate? Because those are big words. Uh, I think they would <laughs> we would all do well with those being defined. So yeah, co-redemptrix, we mean that along with Christ, she had a role in our redemption, which that alone sounds... I can already hear Protestants being like, oh, mm, 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 mm. no, no, no. <laughs> but that's what we mean is with, not above, not on the same level of, but just with Christ. That's what co means. Helped. Uh, and the the I-X at the end of mean is a female term. So co-redentrix. Um, mediatrix is that she helps distribute the graces that come from God's sacrifice on the cross, that God gave her the role to help distribute those graces that come from Jesus um, out to his children. And then advocate is that she goes to God um, and pleads for her children, that he was she was given the role to go to God and ask for mercy for her children because we think she was given the role as our mother. That's helpful. Um, yeah, and just a note of response is that Protestants don't see a scriptural basis for Mary's intercessory role um, or that she in some way functions as a mediator or a benefactor for the people of God. So once again, that would be the point of distinction. Um, we see that there is one mediator, the man Jesus Christ, which is in 1 Timothy 2.5. Um, and we don't see a mention of Mary playing this role in the New Testament. Obviously, she was still alive in the New Testament. So it's not that that's like a <laughs> hammer down, like, oh, that proves our point. Um, but we would see like that they would be making mention of that coming in the future if that was yeah. a huge role. Um, and I think too, it's this once again just comes and shows the distinction between Catholicism and Protestant denominations is we don't have people in those roles, right? Um, we see that with the ushering in of the new covenant when Jesus resurrected from the dead, that he takes that role of high priest that was imperfectly, um, put forth by human high priests in the Old Testament and throughout scripture leading up into the point of Christ that when he comes he fulfills that role. Christ says I came not to abolish the law to, but to fulfill it. So we see that in that moment there is no need for those intercessory roles because Christ fully 
and perfectly takes on that role and that all the roles leading up to that were just pointing towards him. So could you just maybe kind of explain even her role in this and how Catholics understand it? Because I think a lot of Protestants are like me, where we are like, well, there's no one in that role, so we can't even understand what that role would even look like. Well, I'm going to even point to something that we both would believe in for interceding. St. Paul says in uh, Colossians 1.24 that Christians are called to make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And that sounds very strange, but what he's saying, um, you know, there are two aspects of human salvation. First, the historic obtaining of saving graces, infinitely and super abundantly accomplished by Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. Second, the release and acceptance of those saving graces to human hearts. And both Protestants and Catholics believe that we do pray for people. We're called to intercede for our brothers in Christ, and we see Mary doing that in a very special way. So there is room for this in Scripture for her to intercede that would not contradict with Scripture um, without even thinking about those other roles that we, you know, we do have priests and such that Protestants don't have. Um, we are all called to be co-redeemers. St. Paul calls us co-workers with Christ. Um, but I think we can all even see just very explicitly in Scripture that Mary was a co-redeemer in ways, um, or a co-worker with Christ, we would say co-redeemer in ways that we were not. She gave birth to Christ, for one, <laughs> which... Her saying yes to Jesus, what she said with her own free will, that right there alone, which we both agree that she did, um, she brought Jesus into this world. That was the beginning of it all, was her saying yes to do that, which was the beginning of Jesus living his life on earth and then ultimately dying for us. So she, we can even see that she right there co-redeemed in a way that none of us have. So she continues to do and intercede for us in a way, a special way apart from the way that we intercede for each other when we pray for each other, which we think our prayers have an effect on God. Mary has an even more significant role in that as um, co-redemptrix. So that's where we would, um, that's the way I would kind of respond to the um, intercession, that there's no scriptural basis for her intercessory role. Um, there's a scriptural basis for our intercessory role, um, and I think there's a scriptural basis for Mary's intercessory role that's on another level than ours. So how would you respond um, to people, <laughs> meaning Protestants, <laughs> who say that Christ is our one mediator? Oh. Um, mm -hmm. Or that, you know, Christ's role as our mediator is primary, self-sufficient, necessary, you know, that there's no need for other people in those roles. Like, what would you be your response to that? Yeah, um, I think it's similar to what I was saying when I was talking about those two aspects of human salvation. So, yes, there was that very first, you know, historic saving of um, obtaining of our those saving graces by Jesus' sacrifice. But there is that, you know. Paul says we're called to make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Um, for some reason, God wanted it that way, that we have this secondary role of um, helping and praying for other people to accept those saving graces. And that's what we see Mary, um, her role as. So she is in no way, like I said, co is with. It is not, does not mean she's on the same level because she is not. She's not God. Jesus did that, you know, died and took on our sins. Um, Mary in no way cannot even touch that. Um, she just has a very special way of making up for what is lacking in the suffering of Christ that Paul points to. I think this is, <laughs> this isn't even in our notes, but I was just thinking of this, that this comes down to um, 
how Catholics and Protestants view justification and sanctification in that we believe that you are justified when you are saved and that sanctification is um, just the working through of that justification um, mm-hmm. whereas it's a little mm. different with Catholics that so now even just as you're talking I was like oh that's why true and that's an entirely yeah. different discussion yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I think that also just kind of helps in that because I was just thinking I was like oh we don't use the term saving graces and just things like that I was like oh <laughs> It's interesting because we do think, though, that you would still say, like, your prayers for others do have an effect on God, Mm -hmm. which that alone is just so crazy to me that God lets us affect him. Would even listen. (laughs) I I know, which is just, we both believe that, and that's just uh, just crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But he does. And for some reason, he could marry a role where she can affect him, and we think, go to him and be like, hey, can you help out this person here because I'm (laughs) asking you to? Um, But we do that as well. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, um, unless you have anything else that you would like to add. Oh, yeah, I think I want to point to some places in scripture of her Mm -hmm. being a mediator that we see. So the wedding at Cana, um, we see Mary's mediation advocacy advocacy in the wedding at Cana. uh, Yeah, at the wedding of Cana. So when Jesus is asked um, to turn the water into wine, um, when Jesus when Mary comes to him about that, he says to her kind of in a very rude way, like woman my, you know, what do you mean? And saying, my hour has not yet come. And she responds to the servants, doesn't even say anything to Jesus and says, do whatever he tells you. So Mary right there is mediating to begin Christ's ministry on earth. He's saying to her, I haven't started my public, publicly public ministry yet. And when I do, that is the beginning of the end. That is the beginning of my ministry that will ultimately end in my suffering and your suffering the Mm. piercing of your heart which Simeon refers to um, at the presentation and she's right there beginning his ministry for us saying turns and says do whatever he tells you (laughs) what a mom (laughs) I know what a mom she knew that that would be the beginning and lead to Calvary where they would both suffer greatly Mm. and that was her mediating and be you know beginning the salvation and Jesus listened to her that's what's so funny Jesus was like okay mom I'll do it um which I think is just so funny to me that Mary said, said that to him, you know? Um, but that, yeah, that's something that we point to of her being our mediator. Um, and I can get into this too, advocate. So in the Old Testament, the Queen Mother in the New Testament, um, the term we uh, use was Gebira. She had the role to intercede for the people to the king. And we see Mary um, as the Queen Mother and that she intercedes for us. So that's a, you know, a term, a type. So it points back to the Old Testament. Um, of that role being the queen mother and interceding for the people just as um, and then in the New Testament that points to the role of Mary that she would be an advocate for her children to Jesus the king yeah and I think um, that's an interesting picture for me to consider but also that that use of her as queen I think a lot of um, Protestants even myself included were kind of take pause at um and that is one of her titles is mary queen of heaven um mm-hmm. so i think a lot of times when i hear this phrase it just sounds godly to me in mm-hmm. some way deified mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. queen of heaven heaven being <laughs> where god is sure. um and i think it wasn't until i started working at a catholic organization that i even 
found out that there are such things as Marian apparitions where Mary appeared to people. I was I did not even know that happened. Um, but in hearing these stories, I was learning, you know, that she appears in different ways. So like, you know, even the, her ethnicity or things like that in artwork you see. Um, and I guess that just doesn't sound human to me because <laughs> yeah. humans are embodied. You know, we For can't sure. appear different to different people. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of this, you know, when I hear that term, I just see that as being like the role of a goddess, right? Or even a demigod, something like that, you know, under God, but also like mm, a little more godly than just a human. Um, so what is kind of more the correct view of Mary being queen of heaven? So I won't get into this, but we s- what we point to is biblically, and I'll put this in the notes as her being queen, is pointed to in Revelations. And I will put the passages and such, but there is a biblical basis for this as well, which this is a lot. And I, like I said, we could go on for hours about this. But I yeah, put the notes in that. But we find have this basis in Revelations where we um, think that they're referring to Mary as the queen. Um, yeah, so her appearing to people, um, we think... Once again, we only think she has the power to do so is because it's coming from God alone and God elevated her to do this. So that in no way to us makes her a goddess. If she were, or she was in any way a demigod, her power would in some way have to come from herself and not from God. So we just don't see it that way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we think it's just this role she's give, given and she just does it perfectly um, in obeying God. And her appearing as different ethnic- ethnicities to people, the thing is, is that when we think people are seeing Mary, they're in a complete state of ecstasy. And unless we were those people, we don't know exactly what they saw. When people try to describe Mary, a lot of them don't even give her a skin color. Like she was just glowing. She was just like this glorified looking, beautiful woman. And we think that her appearing as different ethnicities could just be people trying to relate to what they saw, where they couldn't even really define like what she was, but relate them to themselves. Because we naturally do that as humans. Um, so I think that's why she appears because a lot of, you know, the people that saw her, um, like in Africa, they have a bunch of pictures of a black Madonna that might not even be what they exactly saw her as. It's just them trying to relate to her. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is kind of her role in, you know, reigning <laughs> when it comes to her being mm-hmm. queen of heaven? Yes. So I think it's just doing whatever God wants her to do and our seating for her children, you know, being this this advocate for us. And that's the thing is that we think this just role came from God. And, you know, I will put the scriptural basis for these, but just God gave her this role, we think, and it just wasn't from her own power. And we can't really say why. I mean, why did God decide to have Jesus born from a woman? Why did he give her that very special role that we both agree on? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the mind of God why he decided to do that, but we think he, he did. Um, so yeah, her role as queen is just to obey God and be there to intercede in the roles that we think that she was given. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I hope this was, if anything, interesting <laughs> to listen mm-hmm. to, um, but also just helpful once again, like just coming down to, I think, we could just sum up these two episodes in very basic ways of it's so helpful to just sit down and actually talk and ask questions with the heart of understanding. It's important to define terms. <laughs> it's important just to kind of even just see 
where you're coming from when it comes to your own background you know jackie's naturally going to understand things in a catholic view and mm-hmm. i'm naturally going to understand things in a protestant view mm-hmm. and it's not until we actually hear the other person that we'll even realize that because we all assume people think the way we think yeah so i think even just for myself that this was a very humbling and helpful experience and i i want that for all of you so i would encourage you just to try this in your everyday life yeah and um I never, there are scriptural basis for all of the beliefs, which I don't think I mentioned for the perpetual virginity of Mary. And as I said, we could have just gone on for hours and we didn't even hit all the questions that we initially had. Mm -hmm. So I will provide sources for this in the notes and such, because I know that for Protestants listening, the scriptural basis is very important and I understand (laughs) why. Um, So yeah, I will put more resources and such in the And feel free to email us, you know, if you have further Mm -hmm. questions or if there's an area where you want us to further flesh out just on its own in a podcast episode, like give us feedback. We want to, we want yeah. you to talk to us. Exactly. <laughs> and I just want to thank Megan for being so open and listening, because like I said, this is something that she just um, has said to me, doesn't really understand, doesn't really agree with and kind of, I think for a lot of Protestants just rubs them the wrong way, but she was very open to listen and let me have this place to speak to her and say this. And I had a lot more understanding where she was coming from, why people have such a hesitance against it. So I just think it was a really fruitful conversation. And I thank Megan for being so opening to listening um, to our beliefs on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thank you for allowing me to ask questions that are kind of offensive to some people. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, just ending this. Go out and talk about it.